load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate about the weights And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Welcome to episode 66 of Weekly Weights My name is Alex Hayes and I'm back from Greece And I'm here with Will Who was here the whole time Just held the fort while you were away Nice. Nice. You actually do look like you've gotten some sun. I messaged Chrissy. Did she show you what I said about your skin tone? She didn't. Okay. I said you've progressed from Casper the Ghost white to Simpsons yellow. What do you think? I don't know if it's yellow. I think it's more like the color of Richie Benno's suits. <laughs> yeah, accurate. Like bone? <laughs> yeah, aged bone. Um, bone off R. white, R. beige. Yeah, R.I.P. Richie. One of the best. He was actually the guy who inspired me to pick up the mic and just drone on endlessly for hours at a time what do you think two for 222 back from tea i can't wait till episode 222 which we're gonna call richie benno no matter what it's about let's <laughs> just do an hour about richie benno's life yeah hold out for another three years of weekly weights and we'll get there hold me to that all right today we are back on the programming the series this time what are we programming Programming the deadlift, and this is the final installment of the series. Yeah. Possibly right. final installment of Weekly Weights. No guarantees. We haven't got anything planned for next week. We don't. No. All right. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is a conversation we should have off the air, Will. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so, programming the deadlift. We Last time we did this, we went through all of the training variables and spoke about how in like a space phase-specific manner, we might change them for each lift. We're going to do the same thing for the deadlifts. We'll talk about differences in individual um, in individual considerations of programming. I've just cooked this because Alex was filming me. <laughs> um, and also things about synergy and interference with the other lifts. And then we'll answer some of your questions that you sent me on Instagram. So the first training variable we're going to talk about is the frequency of deadlifting. Alex, what do you got to say? So we'll go through the, um, the phases of training in how they relate to <clears throat> training frequency of the deadlift. So first phase, the hypertrophy phase or the volume phase. So during this phase, um, and this is the same for squat and bench press, we're going to generally go away from the main lift a little bit more. And I've written that we would do the main lift zero to two times. Um, Most times it's one. Sometimes it's zero. If we're a long, long way away from competition and we have, you know, 20, 25 weeks into the next competition, we might do some bodybuilding training, we might not do any deadlifting. So, sorry, just to be clear, are you saying any deadlift I'm saying pattern comp- at all? I'm saying competition, competition. style deadlifting. Uh, so, which you would call your competition stance with or without a belt? Correct. Okay, cool. That's yeah. clear. So, yep. it could be zero competition style deadlifts. Um, it could be as many as two. Yep. Um, I more or less agree. I, I'm going to talk in terms of the deadlift pattern and then when we get to talking about specificity, that'll clear it up. But I tend to have twice a week exposure to some type of a deadlift pattern so some type of a hip hinge on all phases um but sometimes i'll bring that down to one time a week sometimes during peaks for people who just can't handle it although i'd prefer it was just like there was greater undulation um or for people who are de-emphasizing the deadlift or have an injury or something and maybe during a hypertrophy phase it might even drop down to once just because they only need one exposure to hip extension specific bodybuilding-ish work um but usually twice a week for all phases for yeah, me. yeah just less specific like you said yeah i'll agree with that i will 
95% of the time have two slots for a um, primary hip hinge movement. Mm. And it might, like I said, it might be zero comp deadlifts. It might be one, it might be yeah. two. Yeah. Well, that I can get around. Um, <coughs> the other thing that I'd address here is um, I tend to group, I think of deadlift training grouped in with, um, with hamstring accessory work specifically. Um, in the case of the squat, like any squat training you do and any single legged lower body stuff you do, you get a reasonable amount of training of the glutes and to a degree of the, of the back extensors, um, particularly with squatting. Um, so I tend to try and consolidate my hamstring and lower back, um, accessories to the days that I'm deadlifting. Just, I prefer that. So that means that usually you get two exposures per week to training of the hamstrings and lower back. And then I put my deadlift days on them. So whether that's hypertrophy, strength, or peaking, I try and keep it to two days. Yeah, I do exactly the same thing. So I'll have the the primary hip hinge pattern, and then I'll either have a hamstring isolation or a secondary pattern for yep. hamstring glute, lower back. Exactly that. So anyway, for me, hypertrophy phase, strength phase, peaking, default is two. So you you said hypertrophy phase. What about the strength phase? Are you still one to two? So strength phase, like you said, two hip hinge um, pattern sort of slots mm-hmm. uh, usually twice of yep. actual competition deadlift um, sometimes one mm-hmm. and that sometimes is you know whether we want to keep a vari- variation in for longer that targets the weak point of that particular lifter mm-hmm. or it could be someone who lifts sumo who does one time sumo one time conventional and they might not do two times sumo just yet because it might beat up their hips and make it challenging for their squatting yep but we'll get into um, that a bit later um, but yeah, usually two, but sometimes one. So during a strength phase for myself, like I've said, default is two. Very often my second day won't be more competition deadlifting or there'll be one day with competition deadlifting and a supplementary deadlift movement that's targeting weaknesses, whereas one is just competition deadlifting. And usually the one that's only one movement is the easier day because that reduces volume and loading on that day generally. So it'll be lighter and less volume. But in a strength phase, you know, like very commonly for a conventional deadlifter, I might have, say, a proper deadlifting day and then another day of relatively similar difficulty, maybe slightly easier with a block pull or a deficit deadlift or something that happens to target their weaknesses. Um, <clears throat> that would be my normal layout. So I tend to preserve variations until the peak for most people in some capacity. Yeah? Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. But if you were to use... Um, two times per week competition specific deadlift during this strength phase mm-hmm. what would that second day look like is that where we throw in something like clusters emoms and stuff like that yeah so that's something I'd, um, I'd do as well often um, often I would use the clusters on my primary deadlift training day um, in whatever phase and then the second day I'd get them doing some volume um, with just slightly easier loading so so somebody might do, for instance, Katsu, who I was training immediately before I came here, was doing clusters. He had eight sets of two with about two minutes of rest between them. Um, and then his secondary deadlift day at the moment is 10 or 15% lighter for a few sets of five across. And that day is considerably easier for him um, than the eight by two day. So on yeah, if I am using clusters with somebody, usually it's only on one of the days. But again... Often, it, like often, the supplementary deadlift work lends itself to just doing straight sets better anyway. So I might, like in my own instance, when I was using clusters, I might have done just like Kartu, eight by two on my primary day, followed by a supplementary deadlift thing for a couple of sets, 
And then on my secondary deadlift day, I just do like three or four sets of five deficits, slightly easier. So you know, it depends. But usually, usually clusters are on the harder day for me. I tend to do it the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is because I tend to use clusters as technical practice and I tend to keep it really, really easy and really light. Yep. So my main day will just be like a normal loaded, like we would with a squat, like four sets of five, four sets of six, something like that. Yep. Um, and then that secondary day, we're going to do similar total reps, but probably split up into double the sets and yep. with 10 to 15% less intensity. Yeah, so I think the advantage of cluster training I we're almost like preempting ourselves here but the advantage of cluster training or one of them other than the technical practice element is because you get less fatigue within your sets each set is less taxing and you get less like spillover fatigue so you get you know less compromising of your spinal position things like that so usually you can handle slightly more volume at slightly higher intensities when you do the sets as clusters or as you know singles spaced out and things than you necessarily could when they're straight sets um at least chronically because say you do like a four by five deadlift um you know the last rep or two when they're challenging you're going to start to have a bit of backgrounding and things and that knocks you about during that session and like you know as the session goes on that snowballs and your final set gets really hard but then after that session as well you have the accumulated fatigue that makes it hard to go deadlift again whereas if instead of doing a four by five um a four by five with the same weight you did a ten by two say with 90 seconds or two minutes between them usually you can do 20 reps where you have like no compromised spinal position so it's good technical practice but it's also less fatiguing so i found it to like there is less negative trade-off for me in having easy easy days with sets across because like you compromise form less with lighter loads anyway and it allows me to push the harder days slightly harder um, without them actually feeling disproportionately harder by doing the clusters on the main day that's why i do it like that yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah. Um, it's not to say I could never do it the other way. It makes perfect sense as well. But that's my thinking. Yep. Um, so what about the peaking phase? So peaking phase, again, two times a week almost always for me. But only one of them is overloading for almost everyone. Um, I have a couple of lifters where they've had two roughly equally hard days during the peak. They tend to be not very good deadlifters. Um, you know, or people who are technically sound but just absolutely weak. Um, that sounds really bad, doesn't it? It's like you're absolutely weak. Um, yeah, people who are technically sound but weaker or people who are just not very good deadlifters might have two roughly equally hard days. Um, but for almost everybody else, it's like one day that's actually hard and one day that's super duper easy. Um, and whether you make it easier just by chopping volume back a decent way or by chopping volume and intensity and stuff just depends on the person. And, you know, we'll get into that too. You? Yeah, I agree almost entirely with that. And the I generally gauge the contrast and difficulty based on how good that person is at the other thing, like as far as absolute strength goes. So if some, so what's the rule of thumb? So if someone, like you said, if someone is on the weaker end of the spectrum, they're going to have um, two days that are closer in intensity yeah. um, and closer in difficulty. Whereas if someone is on the other end, someone like Nick Walters, yeah, one deadlift session like absolutely kicks his ass so his secondary day might be like 30 40 percent lighter so if we hark back to what matt bartholomew shout out matt said on the podcast in episode four is that when we had him i think he was i think he was four yeah so four or five early many many moons ago we had matt on and he was talking about the contrast between his heavy and light squat days um matt's 280 kilo squatter i think he was like 270 kilo squatter when we spoke to him um 
And he would say that his light squat day often felt harder than his heavier squat day just because he had the accumulated fatigue. And this is something I've experienced and I've seen in my own clients, particularly conventional deadlifters, when you get into a peak, when you start handling loads above about 85%, um, just that carryover fatigue really smacks you. And so you'll do a session that on paper is stupidly easy and it's almost like dislighteningly hard for most people. Um, you know, some people can handle two hard sessions, but that tends to be what someone like Nick Walters would experience. Yeah, and I've experienced this myself. I get really knocked about by um, heavy deadlifts, heavy squats, and when I'm like three, four weeks out, mm. my second deadlift day just feels like complete garbage. Yeah. Like, I'm talking like triples at 200, which is like, what, 70%? If that for you, it's less. Isn't it? Oh, no, 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 you're 280-ish. Yeah, it's about 70 About 70 Yeah. So, like, that should be like comically easy. And mm. it, because of that extra fatigue, like JP got to the point with me where he just, the last three weeks of my peak, he just cuts my second deadlift day. Right. Yeah. Um, whereas I'm probably at the opposite end of the spectrum to Alex. And, and Matt is too as well. Matt's, especially with his squats, like the difference in his heavy and light days are like actually quite close. Yeah. Which well, probably plays into why his heavy, uh, lighter days feel very hard. Or Also, actually that that's a really good example. So I was going to say I'm at the other end of the spectrum to you like my last heavy deadlifts for comp were like singles at 270 Mm. and then my last light deadlifts were singles at like 245 250 so the difference is 10 percent, and it felt you know similarly hard but not that bad so that's still a that's a big um big difference but like i pull with a relatively straight back and you know i'm like efficient at deadlifting look at somebody like matt when he squats and he's got a fantastic squatters build he squats quite upright. You know, his high bar and low bar squats look really similar because his torso position is really good for low bar squatting as well. So he can probably handle days that are like that are easier than each other, but they don't have to be as much easier because like we've said when we were talking about the other lifts, if your build really favors you doing a lift, then it's just less taxing for you to do a certain amount of volume for that lift. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Whereas you, when you deadlift, like particularly with your heavier weights, you do have a more rounded back. That's how you pull best but it also means you're going to take a little bit longer to recover from it usually than somebody who's dead straight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if we sum up the theme of frequency in the deadlift, for me, it's basically twice a week, but the specificity increases across the mesocycle and the undulation increases across the mesocycle. Is that you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the we might go from doing the comp deadlift as little as zero times to up to two. Yeah. And, and would you ever go past two? I was thinking about this in the car on the way here. I can't recall an instance in which I have, so that lends me that ten, yeah that makes me think probably no, but I could like I could see it being justifiable, particularly in the case of maybe sumo deadlifters who are super built for it and pull really upright, particularly if they were emphasising the deadlift. For conventional deadlifters, I'd have to wonder whether there was ever an instance where it was really worth it. And maybe my third exposure to like training that I thought was deadlift training would be accessories only. Like you might do two deadlifting sessions and then the day after your second deadlift session, they might do some like back extensions and GHIs where it's like it's hamstring work, but it's not deadlifting. Um, what about you? Yeah, I follow pretty similar train of thought. The only, I've never given someone three times deadlifts. Mm-hmm. And the only time I would ever actually consider it is if, is, consider it is if someone was were to do like a deadlift only competition yeah and they were prepping for three months for that and you put squats on the back burner and you kind of replace some of that squat volume with deadlifting but even then like there's only so much you can do yeah and you'd have to be careful with 
the um, with managing the intensity and the volume over the week. Yeah. And like to be honest, you probably wouldn't be able to do much more total volume over the week. It would just be split up into smaller doses. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking is I don't know that I would actually get more productive volume done by doing it three times a week. I'd just be a little bit tired. So I don't know. Anyway, my inkling is no, but maybe. Yeah. So pretty much one to two, zero to two all the time. Yeah. Mostly two. Mostly two. Um, All right. Do you want to do intensity or volume next? We can do intensity next. Thank you. I just, we spoke about this. FIV, like that just seems right for training variables. FVI is weird. Sounds like you're an intelligence agency, but Vero. Well, I guess like frequency definitely is first because you have to decide like when when you're drawing out the bare bones of the program, you just like fill in the slots, right? So frequency makes sense to be first. But then I guess it doesn't really matter. I think it actually makes more sense for volume to come next because you write in the number of sets you want to do over the week and then you fill in the load. Yeah, well, too bad. We're doing it. <laughs> I, I completely agree with that with that train of thought, but fuck that anyway. <laughs> We're doing intensity next. Um, so what I said was that I often start and end deadlift training cycles, the lightest of the three lifts. Um, not always, but often. And especially during hypertrophy phases compared to the competition deadlift, the loads that I use are very often the lightest, but I'm also usually the furthest from the competition um, specific movements in doing that so um, so that's my first principle is start and end almost always lighter and the bulk of my volume will be done at average lighter intensities and because I ha- depart from specificity more I can afford to start even lighter cool I yeah. agree with you let's talk numbers mm. um, for hypertrophy slash volume blocks I tend to start things around 50-55% yep um, and this would be for Usually sets of eight, six to ten uh, reps, and it'll be beltless. And you know, usually, um, usually the like the for the, we're talking about for the main lift, yeah. like 50, 55 to seventy percent is what I've written down. Right. So I wrote as light as less than fifty to seventy ish percent, but accounting for the fact that I use variations, so oftentimes people will go from doing mostly comp deadlifts to doing something like you know rdls where you stand on a block and pause at floor level or whatever it happens to be snatch grip rdls deficit deadlifts shit like that and that could be like 30 percent one rm yeah oh well that might be at 40 percent one rm for sets of six to eight which is for that lift might be actually in the 65 to 80 percent range yeah exactly but yeah you know the the magic numbers are you know around 50 percent of your competition pool is a rough starting point sometimes a little bit lighter and up to 70, 75% of the competition pool, probably closer to 70, is a rough ending number. And then the variations smush somewhere in there. And you tend to take bigger jumps in deadlift like week to week as far as progression goes than the others. Um, but would you say it's relative to percentage or would you say they're even greater than relative to percentage? Uh, I remember you mentioning this earlier. I take greater jumps in absolute terms. In relative terms, they're usually very similar. Um and when you account for the fact that they start easier, that means they can like they can afford to ramp up at the same rate without tapping out because deadlifts are more taxing. But you said you've done greater in relative terms jumps for a number of people too, right? Yeah. What's the rationale for that? Um, I just think that... Um, I, don't, I don't know if there's much rationale for that other than like... The, you're just going to start so much lighter than the other two. Like mm. you might start squats at 60, but you might start deadlifts at 50. 
And if you're a 300 kilo deadlifter, like those, that 50% is so easy that like you could probably afford to take a 5% jump to the next week. Sure. Whereas if you start at 60 um, in the squat, you probably can't jump 5% too long until you like run out of gas. But does that reflect the fact that after a competition, you are taxed so you need to start light? Or does that reflect the actual rate of progress you're making with that lift? Yeah, definitely the former. Yeah, so you're basically saying you need this much time to actually be recovered to go back to proper training stimulus. And then once you get towards what's different at a peak because you tend to hold back on deadlifts then push them in the last few weeks. But let's talk about just like bog standard strength blocks, you know, no more than, sorry, no closer than six weeks from a comp and like anything 12 to 14 weeks out. Are the jumps you take proportionally similar? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, so I think that's really what what you're describing there, in which case I I can completely agree with you. Um, But here's the case I could see for making proportionally bigger jumps within a block for deadlift training. So deadlifts are the most taxing lift. I actually wrote some notes about that that I want to say after this. But deadlifts tend to be the most taxing lift. Um, They're also the most technically simple. And I think hard exposures of the deadlift take longer to recover from. We've already spoken about that. Um, But I also think you need fewer hard exposures and similarly hard exposures in like, as in like in percentage terms, the same exposure for a deadlift is harder than for a squat. So you could probably afford to make your deadlift training more pulsatile. So have higher peaks and bigger troughs than the squat. And then the squat would be even more so than the bench. And when you look at how we program, that's, that actually seems to be kind of the case, right? Is like we have relatively high frequencies of bench, decent amount of volume across the board. We don't push progression super fast at a given time and we deload a bit, but it's not like super aggressive ever. Whereas the squat, we have relatively steady progressions, bit of undulation and the deadlift, we have heaps. So you could almost, in structuring a block, you could say the same thing. You could say, I'm going to start squats moderate and end hard. I'm going to start bench moderately hard and end very hard. And I'm going to start deadlifts easy and end hard because I can only sustain say two hard weeks of deadlift training and the easy weeks are still productive does that make sense yeah that absolutely makes sense another way to think about this is um, deadlift is the most fatiguing per rep yeah so it lends itself to doing less reps per set yeah and it would mean it peaks you for harder performances at the end of your block if you start easier right yeah and also if you're doing say you're doing triples and doubles for a six week period you're Mm going to be able to take bigger percentage jumps than if you were squatting fours and fives yeah yeah um that said i haven't tended to really do that but i could see i could certainly see the case for doing it particularly if i was working with somebody like really big and strong then i'd probably think about doing that a lot more um what i had to say about deadlifts so they're simple um but they're also the most taxing and that makes me think they have the they have the worst um mike israel's terminology for it is stimulus to fatigue ratio um for hypertrophy training which is to say like the amount of actual work you get through your hamstrings and erectors when deadlifting versus how much volume you can actually handle before you crap the bed with them is not particularly good yeah and that's exactly um, the reason why we would go away from comp specific deadlifts during a hypertrophy block exactly and also in comp specific deadlifts we tend not to do an eccentric phase so it makes it even shitter yeah absolutely um, whereas when you do like an rdl with a slow eccentric or something and you pause under tension suddenly you reduce you reduce a lot of those problems from the actual deadlift. You don't have as much load going through your back. You get more stimulus to your hamstrings and stuff. So that's one of the reasons to move away from specificity. Um, and then the other point to continue 
is that technical failure tends to occur furthest from actual concentric failure in the deadlift because it is simple. So hark back to what I said about doing hard sets of five, where reps four and five, you probably have a compromised back position, but you can still do it. Um, and that that also contributes to the bad stimulus fatigue ratio. It's like if you do a set of deadlifts to actually one rep in reserve, you've probably done three or four shitty reps to get there. Um, and then you have more systemic fatigue than you want. So yeah, that was that was it. I thought there was another sentence to those notes, but that was actually the last one. What do you think? Agree entirely. Yeah. So that's my rationale for moving way away from specificity in hypertrophy phases. And if I keep competition lifts in, I do it very, very sub-maximally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, we spoke about hypertrophy phase intensity. I said 50-ish to 70-ish percent, maybe a little bit lighter or heavier on either end. Um, what about strength phases? So I've written 70 to 85%. And um, if you go back and listen to the squat and the bench press, um, during this strength phase, I mentioned that I peak intensity around 90. So the deadlift's going to be a little bit lighter at 85 peak intensity yeah um i in i in strength phases i do yeah similar to the squat and bench press so 70 to 85 percent as well but i tend to keep a few more reps in reserve again for the reasons i just said um and that's again where i think clusters can be really handy so what Um, that means is like instead of doing a set of five at 80 percent, you might do a couple of sets of three at 80 percent yeah or you know you might do four sets of six or five sets of five for squats whereas i might do five or six sets of four mm. to get similar volume done so whether or not i'm using clusters i account for that a little bit yep did you mention peak no no yet. okay no. yeah that's basically it for strength phases though similar actual intensity account for the fact that um that going close to failure is quite taxing yeah so four peaks um just like the squat and the bench 85 plus mm-hmm but we'll have less weeks of loading for the deadlift because um, this will be the one that will taper off the earliest. Mm-hmm. So it's generally one less loading week, yeah. which means we have to kind of ramp things up a little bit faster, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and this is where we're going to have a greater disparity in contrast between heavy light day. So if we're going to get up to sort of 90, 95% for our heaviest deadlift session, mm-hmm. that lightest day is going to be like 65 to 75%. Yeah, that tends to be the case. Um, I wrote 65 to 80% for light days with heaps of reps in reserve, but that 80% is really reserved for people like, say, myself who can handle two heavier deadlift sessions. And irrespective, you need heaps of reps in reserve on your easy day. Yeah, or very small people. Yeah, or very small people. Well, I'm both small and good at deadlifting. Um, I wouldn't say you're small. Well, I'm chubby, but... Um, um, anyway... And then, yeah, the heaviest day, I spoke in terms of competition attempts, but percentage-wise, the same thing. So somewhere between an opener and a second attempt. And it also just depends on the individual. Some people get heaps out of a peak for deadlifts and asking them to pull over an opener in training would like nearly kill them. Some people like me can pull up to maybe a little bit above a second attempt in training and they only really get another few percent out of peaking. So it depends who you're dealing with, but generally I would push it less hard than the squat and bench press. Full agreement there? Full agreement there. Do you want to move on to volume? Yep. I do feel like volume just comes nicely after intensity once we've said that, don't you? Sure, mate. I just don't know that anyone would sort of have any context for volume if we hadn't said how often are we deadlifting and how hard has it got to be? You know, because now they're thinking, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Now how much are they going to do? Don't you reckon? I understand your reasoning, but I respectfully (laughs) disagree. Okay. Well, I... 
disrespectfully right, let, let's hear it maintain that volume should come <laughs> down <laughs> um okay premise one almost always i would do the lowest volume of deadlift training um as compared to the other two lifts agree cool okay well that's good um why is that well big, we, we mentioned it earlier yeah it's most more, fa- more fatiguing per rep yeah um lends itself to lower rep training yeah, and also you get the bit of carryover from squat training. I mentioned like back end glute training from the squat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like we spoke about with Matt Gary, like he programs only singles. Yeah, where his volume would be like probably fifty percent of what his squat volume would be. Yeah, in a given week. Yeah, I don't think the disparity should be that extreme most of the time. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, but certainly, I would do less volume for deadlifting. Yep. Um, also, this is full bro science that may be actual science. Um, lots of people report that they can handle less hamstring training than they can quad training. Agree entirely. Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, anecdotally, anecdotally. Anecdotally agree this entirely. This is why it's bro science because it's anecdote. And then the reason it's bro science and not just bro is because the hamstrings tend to be a fastest twitch muscle fiber. And so I don't think there's actually much evidence for fiber specific training, fiber type specific training to be effective at all. But people have posited that higher, that faster twitch fibers would respond to lower volumes of training. The problem is that like when you actually put muscle fibers on a person, there's lots of other factors that contribute to how much training volume you can sustain, like the absolute loads you go through, how much of like the physiological length of a muscle it can be stretched for under load, things like that too. But most people don't handle a lot of hamstring training. Um, and yeah, most, and some people have attributed that to being because it's faster twitch. So there you go. There's a broy reason for maybe not doing. Bro, that was sciencey. Yeah, I know. That felt fucking sciencey as shit. Um, have you ever wondered why chicken breasts and chicken thighs are different colors? Hit me. Um, I want to get this the correct way. So one is fast twitch muscle fiber and one is slow twitch muscle fiber. And it would make sense. This doesn't make sense. Um, one is fast twitch muscle fiber. One is slow twitch muscle fiber. And faster twitch muscle fibers should be white because they they have less blood flow. I'm going to Google this in our break. Um, and therefore, the slower twitch muscle fibers should be red. So I'm presuming that chicken breasts are for one reason or another fast twitch. That doesn't make any sense to me though. Oh yeah, because they don't really fly much. There you go. What do you think? I'm going to look that up. There's some more bro science for everybody about training birds. I'm going to be entirely honest. I was on my phone and not listening to you. Yeah, well, it's probably for the best. All right, that was a useless 30 seconds of podcast. And you know when I listen to this podcast back, yeah, you'll get to this point. I'll be on my phone forward. and not listen to you. <laughs> I don't blame you. All right. Um. Yeah, anyway, so proportionally, we're going to do less volume for the deadlift and the hamstrings than we would for the squat and the quads, for instance. Yeah, and way, way less than the bench and the pecs. So when we um, say these number of sets that we're going to do, don't be surprised that they're going to be a lot less. Yeah, Um, but I do like deadlifts, so that makes me bump them up 10 to 15%. Deadlifts are good. Yeah. I've actually considered higher frequency deadlift training for my clients now that that we're on this point, just because the probability of me having to deadlift with them as opposed to anything else would increase. What do you think of that? And just take bench frequency down to zero. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Also... I'll explain some cluster protocols and stuff after this, but when we say these set numbers, obviously if you're doing 12 sets of two, I'm not going to count that as 12 deadlift sets. So um, the easy way of set counting that I do with them, and this is full bro science as well, is I just add the number of reps you would do total up and then divide it by roughly the types of reps that I might do with that relative intensity. So if I do a 12 by two with the type of stuff I might normally do fives or sixes with, 
I've got 24 reps, which is like four to five-ish sets, you know? Yep. Something like that. Um, anyway, whatever. It doesn't right. matter. Hypertrophy. So, I've split this into sets of barbell deadlifting. Yep. Um, and I'm going to uh, preface that in quote in quotations barbell deadlift to conventional or sumo. Yeah, I'm fine so with that. Stiff legs don't count. RDLs don't count. Um pause lifts oh, pause deadlifts count okay um, so main basically just main deadlifts okay so you should have written and that then instead of barbell deadlifts that and then accessory barbell deadlifts okay that makes that's sense that's my second category yeah and then my third is hamstring slash glute isolation so you've basically said like rectangles square rectangles <laughs> <laughs> and then rhombuses <laughs> <laughs> alright let's so, okay so four hypertrophy Zero to six sets of barbell deadlifting. Yep. So zero, the example we gave earlier, someone deep in a hypertrophy block doing no comp-specific deadlifts. Mm-hmm. Um, six might be someone doing three sets of sumo, three sets of conventional on two separate days, or sure. any other example of two variations. Anything that adds up to six. Yes. Shout out JP for sending us two sample totals that didn't <laughs> add up to six. and 700. Idiot. Yeah, fucking idiot. All right, next. Um, and then I've written three to eight sets of accessory barbell deadlifts. Mm-hmm. And if we have little sets of main barbell deadlifts, we'll have more sets of accessory barbell deadlifts, yeah, obviously. That makes good sense. And then three to six sets of hamstring glute isolation work. So what is the like the low and top end-ish total set volume for hips you've got there? Um, probably looking at low end... 10 sets yeah high end 15 sets okay so that jives pretty well with what i said i didn't split between barbell deadlifts and barbell deadlifts point two. <laughs> barbell deadlift 2.0 <laughs> like you idiot um, <laughs> i can't believe i, I wrote just, that yeah it's i so wrote dumb. i just wrote deadlifting variations and then accessory hamstring slash backy stuff i think it's important to i actually do think it's important to split them up though yeah it, it makes, makes sense it makes sense when you split the phases up yeah, yeah, no, I'm with you. It's fine. Okay. Um, so I wrote four to twelve sets of deadlifting variations. That includes competition and non-competition e deadlifts. Yeah. Um, bearing in mind that in some instances in a hypertrophy phase, they might only deadlift from the floor once with me, and then the other time might be some type of a heavyish RDL variation or something. So, yeah, four to twelve sets of that, plus four to ten sets of accessory hip and hamstring stuff. Um. Uh, so you're like up you're like up at 20 like top end 20 22 sets no because i would never give somebody the top end of both so you know i would have a similar trade-off to you so somebody might go if they only did four sets of actual deadlifting with a bar in a week on one day they might have you know closer to 10 sets of accessory hamstrings that takes them to 14 sets but if they were doing 10 or 12 sets with the bar they'd rarely have more than six sets of other stuff so it's really more like 10 to 18 with most people sitting much nearer the middle of that, like yep. 14, 15. Yep. Um, in, that's in a hypertrophy phase. And in that phase, I'd also have very limited undulation of intensity or relative intensity at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, strength phases, still four to 12 sets of deadlift variations um, and rarely less than six unless they're only deadlifting on one day. Um and you get undulations in absolute intensity because usually I'm using a variation on one of the days. And if I'm not, then I get I just get massive undulation in difficulty, like I've already said. You? So I've written six sets of six to ten sets of main barbell deadlifting mm-hmm. and then another two to five sets of accessory barbell deadlifting. 
Okay, so we're not really too far off there either. Yeah. Six to ten is twelve. Oh, sorry, it's ten plus two is twelve. Eight to yeah. fifteen. Yeah. Total. Yeah. Um, and then I've only written uh, two to four sets of hamstring stretch glute isolation work. So I said fewer usually, but still four to ten sets because there are instances in which in a strength phase I might have somebody do say four sets of actual deadlifts three sets of an accessory deadlift on a day so that's seven sets of deadlifting and three sets of hamstrings yep. and then another day where they might have four or five easier sets of deadlifting and you know four to five sets of other hamstring or glute stuff on another day so that's that's still eight sets of accessories and that doesn't seem unreasonable but most of the time i'd be closer to six or okay. yeah um, I, split, I tend to during strength blocks keep two accessory slots mm-hmm. and I leave one of them to be in isolation yep. and the other one to be some compoundy like a back extension or a, something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. So wh- what I do when I think of particularly hamstring accessories is I split them up between work that is knee flexion, so hamstring curls, JHRs, Nordics, things like that, um, and hip extension work. So, you know, back extensions, RDLs, good mornings, things like that. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. Um, And when um, when deadlifts are lower volume in a program, so if somebody's only doing six sets of deadlifts across a strength program, then I might have more hip extension accessory work. Um, And where they're doing a lot of actual deadlifting, then I'd bias it more towards hip, I'm sorry, knee flexion. just because like if somebody's already doing heaps of deadlifting, they probably one, don't need more actual hip extension practice, but two, that stuff tends to be more taxing. Like if you think about doing barbell back extensions and stuff, that's harder and more tiring than just lying on the hamstring curl, yeah. Yeah, by miles. Completely agree. And I even go a little bit further with this and on my main deadlift day mm-hmm. I will have the easier hamstring variation. Mm-hmm. So it might be like main deadlift then to bench or whatever and then hamstring girls yeah. or GHRs and then on the other day it might be lighter deadlifts and then an RDL or a dumbbell RDL or a stiff leg from block or whatever so that's something I tend to do the reverse of but I don't think it matters that much I often consolidate the hardest work to the hardest day to build in some more recovery so I might have for many people I might have like hard deadlift supplementary deadlift and then some hardish accessory work. So they might actually have 10 hard sets of deadlifty training in a day. But then their other day, they've got four or five easy sets of deadlifts and then just some hammy curls. So it's some top-off hamstring volume, but it's considerably easier. And because my easier deadlift day also tends to sit closer to my harder squat day, I've reduced the spinal loading on that day. That's why I do that. Um, but I, I don't think it matters enormously at the end of the day. So I do it the way that I do it because... Um just from personal anecdote, I know how cooked I am after doing hard deadlifts mm. and I really don't want to do any other barbell hinging or anything difficult posterior chain-wise. Yep. And I think it's easier to just finish the deadlifts, tick that off and then move on and do something easy. Yeah, I can Whereas that. when you're doing an easier deadlift day, it might be just some light conventionals. Yeah. Um, I think it's easier to then back that up and do something a little bit more difficult. Yep, I can completely get around that as an idea too. Either way, we both have a logic to why we do what we do. Yeah. Okay, peaking. Okay, for me, at the extreme low end or in the final week of a peak, as few as one hard sets of deadlifts, um, up to 10-ish, of which usually it's one to five harder sets, and the remainder are easy. And I have very limited accessory hamstring work, zero to six sets, 
um, usually closer to zero and usually it's knee flexion stuff and the reason I go to knee flexion is what I said before is it's just less taxing. Um, Alex? Yeah, so I've written six to ten sets of uh, competition style deadlift um, and it's usually going to be three to four hard sets and then the rest are going to be easy on the easy day mm-hmm. and those easy sets are going to be like four to six doubles or four to six singles at very light and it's literally just practice. Yep. Um, so probably similar to what you do but I like to space those sets out and sort of do more first reps. Yeah. So um, where I had said in fact actually I should clarify my easier days during a peak are almost always low rep as well. So during a strength phase they might have an easy day that's four sets of five. During a peak almost always it's like five sets of two or something like that. You know very rarely more than two or three reps. In fact very rarely even three reps on easy easy days during a peak but Maybe for some people. Yeah. Um, I should also mention that in the strength phase, um, half of that deadlifting volume might be allocated to non-specific deadlifting, but in the peak, easy and hard days are almost always entirely competition-specific deadlifts. I do very, very little accessory deadlift work in that. You? Yeah, very similar. The only uh, time I can see not doing twice per week specific is if someone pulls sumo and they just can't handle two times a week sumo on the hips in which case they might do like a sumo block pull yeah where there's a little bit less um movement through the hip and they don't get called away to that starting position yeah. but they're still practicing the balance in the lockout yeah um or they might do conventionals so like i can use two people as an example potty for instance um shout out potty at postman pots yeah go, go follow him yep um he pulls once a week sumo on his hard day during peaks and mm-hmm. then sumo block pulls on his easy day during peaks. And then I might look at someone like Nick Walt who doesn't move as well through the hips mm-hmm. and he can only handle went back when he was pulling sumo one times per week sumo and the other day was just conventional. And with the conventionals super easy, yeah, like even more super, disproportionately super easy. easy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like, like top sumo pull of his was 285 and I think like we're doing triples at 150 to 170 conventional on the other day right. so like very 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 easy so the extreme other end of the spectrum one of my clients kyla who hit an eight kilo deadlift pb i what think after 134 something 130 134 yeah. um but that's off i think that was eight or ten weeks of training from her previous comp so she's increased her deadlift a lot mm-hmm. um she trains both sumo and conventional all the way through to a competition and then only in her taper week does she drop conventional and that's just because they both work so synergistically well with each other mm-hmm. and i don't think she would get any extra marginal benefit by doing sumo twice um but she's at the other end of the spectrum she's she's actually becoming quite a strong deadlifter and quite a competent one so that might change soon but for a while she just needed some basic hip hinging and hamstring stuff so there was no benefit to doing technical practice of the sumo she just needed more deadlift strength yeah and if we look back on the peaking comparison podcast that we did mm. that's something that i spoke about with regards to low bar and high bar squats yes with the more beginner lifter that we looked at we kept the high bars in the whole time mm-hmm. just because they just need to get through volume and whatever mm. and they don't need that specificity and it doesn't really add much at that level yeah. and it's the same the same rationale as kyla's deadlifting yeah um that yeah that might change soon i reckon she's gonna pull maybe 140 plus by the end of the year what comp what comp she doing uh, she hasn't picked one out, but it'll probably be December top lifter or somewhere in January, February. Sweet. Yeah. Um, all right. Also, she's staying in Australia, so congrats. Yeah, congratulations, Kyla, for getting your visa. Um, clusters. So, 
I wrote out a cluster protocol that I have used um, and modified for a number of people. And then I'd be interested to hear some of the ways Alex has used singles because I haven't done a whole lot of clustered single reps um, outside of peaking. But so here's one four successive blocks leading into a peak. So first block, I would go eight to 10 sets of three every minute on the minute or close to. And that should start really easy, like approximately 60%. Um, and then across sort of four to five weeks, intensities can go up seven to 10%. So that's increasing roughly 2% a week. Um, then you would have a deload and then do 10 to 12 sets of two. And that's somewhere in the every minute on the minute through to every 90 seconds range, starting at roughly the weight that you finished your last one at. And again, adding seven to 10% across the weeks. Um, so that's you know three to five weeks of loading. So let's you say adding seven to ten percent total. Total, yeah. Um, yeah. What are, what are the intensity ranges for that first block and then the next block? So the first block would go from sixty to just shy of seventy percent. The second one would go from just shy of seventy percent to high seventies, like seventy-five to seventy-seven. May probably not as heavy as eighty, but you know, say seventy-seven-ish percent. Then the next one. And often I do the first one, possibly even two of them beltless, in which case it might start even lighter. And then the next one, I would do six to eight sets of two every 90 seconds to two minutes. And that's starting again where I left off. So 75 to 80%. Um, again, adding seven to 10% across the week. So it might get you up to 85 or just north of 85% for some doubles. And then have another deload and then starting usually just lighter than where I finished. Do over four weeks, go 12 singles, 10 singles, 8 singles, and 6 singles, spaced every 2 to 3 minutes. Um, and again, start just where you finished, add a couple of percent a week, and that should take you up to or a bit above an opener. And then from there, you could have like a deload and test. Um, I've done that for myself and for a number of other people, and they've done pretty well. But the trick is really in picking the loads, because if you start too aggressively and progress too aggressively you do really badly. You want to basically pick what your final week number should be. And then work backwards, yeah. Yeah, work backwards for each block. So you can reasonably say, I could end up doing eight doubles at blah at the end of four weeks and then work your jumps back from there. It's better to do that than to project ahead. So you could you could almost even start at the 16-week mark mm. and say, like, I want to pull 300 kilos in the comp. So I'm going to need to do my final... Was the final one four singles or six singles? Six singles. Okay, so you might say, like, I want to do that six singles at 275. Yeah. That might be... A, you know, good no, that's number. exactly that's, what I did personally. Yeah. Okay. So you might say six singles at 275, then you'll do eight singles at 267.5, then you do 10 at 260, and then work all the way back to those eight triples at roughly 180. That's exactly how I did it over about five or six months. Cool. And I ended up pulling 290 in training and then missing 300, tragically. Yeah. <laughs> no, did, oh, no, no, no. Sorry. That? I did 290 at the competition, dropped it, did 290 again. Yeah. Got I it. think if your grip was better, you probably would have had. Another five kilos. Yeah. So it kind of worked-ish. Yeah. But I also had to extend the peak for four weeks after because I YOLO entered that comp. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. Anyway, it worked very well for me. It's worked very well for a couple of other people, notably Omar Jan, Omi J, shout out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's a cluster protocol that I've used. When you do clustered singles, what would be a, like an example light day in a strength phase for you? So it's very similar to how you laid it out but mm-hmm. you just have to add more sets because you're only doing one rep right um so you'd start at the end you do your um i i tend to when i get to the strength block and the peaking phase i do 
two top singles and then back down singles. Yeah. So it might be like two by one, then the last week, three by one, then week four, two by one, five by one, week four, two by one, seven by one, whatever. Yep. And then working all the way backwards. Um, and you're just going to do pretty much exactly the same thing that you you said. Like you're starting around the 65 to 70% range mm-hmm. and you're ending all the way up at about 95 So what you said about doing singles and then backing off, that protocol that I just said there, I did the final two blocks of that, two blocks or three blocks of that leading into nationals this year, but with singles before it and a couple of like eight weeks out or something, I was doing doubles before it. And the fatigue from those heavy ones meant I had to be even more conservative with the back off ones um, because it really does knock you about extra. So if you go whacking in top singles then your back-offs need to be disproportionately easier or you'll just get absolutely spanked. Yeah, like I'm, I'm using this for Brandon at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's about five weeks out from comp. Yeah. And his final week, I think, is 242 and a half for yep. two singles, uh, which is 92%. Yep. And then he's he does uh, three singles after those two singles at about 225. Right, so Which is like 86%. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Should we take a very quick break? Yep. All right, we'll be right back. <laughs> weekly Weights. <laughs> All right, what up? It's Weekly Weights. I'm Will, getting to reintro us for once. I'm with Alex. We're talking about deadlifting. And we've knocked off frequency, intensity, and volume in the correct order. <laughs> we're now, we're now going to talk about specificity and variation. So we've or- I've already discussed ad nauseum this podcast about how I move from extremely unspecific through to pretty much 100% competition pulling. And I've also spoken about the considerations for accessory work, whether it needs to be hip extension or um, or knee flexion oriented for hamstrings and so on. What other considerations do you have, Alex? Do you want to just go through the phases and talk about which accessory, accessories we would use and why? Yeah, sure. Why okay. not? So we'll start with um, hypertrophy. So we tend to use exercises that lend themselves to um, higher rep ranges. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they're less fatiguing per rep than like a competition deadlift. Less fatiguing, more fatiguing per rep. Less. I don't think it's because they have longer ranges. No, Sorry, no, no, I'm no. being semantically. No, 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 no. It's not because, but yeah. they are. But they are. Yeah, you and use uh, lighter that, loads. Yeah, and that is because we use lighter loads. Yes. So the, li- the loads we're using are lighter. The range of motions are going to be longer, mm-hmm. generally. Yep. Um, we're going to emphasize eccentric phases, which mm-hmm. we don't do in the comp deadlift. Yep. Um, so some examples of this are RDLs, stiff legs, deficits. What else? Anything touch and go. So I have used touch and go deadlifts, particularly with controlled eccentrics. I think dropping deadlifts and doing touch and go is dumb as shit. Shout out to anyone who does that. Agree. Um, yeah. Likewise, pulls from blocks with a controlled eccentric. Great. RDLs, um, a variation I've used with a lot of people that I really like is a deadlift where you stand on a block and then you reverse where you would normally hit the ground. And I do that with a controlled eccentric and a pause where the ground would be. And that's just like a constant tension deadlift. I did something similar um, a long time ago with Chrissy. Mm-hmm. Stand on a block yeah, and it was like pause where the floor would be exactly and then on that. the way back up. But it was on the way up, not the way down. You're talking about way down, right? No, I do it on the way down and they don't touch the floor. Okay. So it's, yeah, constant tension deadlifting and it teaches people really well to, like what it feels like to hold tension in yep. their hips and hamstrings yep. in the bottom position. Um, things like that. Any RDL variations, snatch grip, normal grip, 
extended range, short range, pauses, anything like that. Yep. Great. Um, um, yeah, that's so during hypertrophy volume blocks, we might have some volume allocated to work that is for the technical aspects of building a lifter. Mm-hmm. So what are some examples um, that we might use during this phase that would be different to another phase? I don't know about different to another phase um, because I tend to think of just strengthening the muscles and the general pattern of the deadlift. So things like RDLs and things like those constant tension RDLs are really good technique variations because you get such a good sense of your positioning and you strengthen the hammies and glutes and back. But I don't really program it like technique work. I wouldn't give somebody necessarily like three sets of five unless they're a beginner that actually needs to do technique practice. Um, I'm talking about stuff like slow deadlifts to the knee and then decelerate through and like i can't think of any other, like pause deadlifts and sure. stuff like that well i would i would never give somebody paused deadlifts like as in pull from the floor do a pause finish your deadlift drop it and go again pretty much never give them during a hypertrophy phase i'm not mortally opposed to it but um but i would save that usually for strength phases as a technique variation because I think I could achieve similar things with stuff that's more amenable to doing more volume for hypertrophy um, in that. So, I, yeah, I, I don't really err towards deadlifts that are purely for technique unless somebody actually needs pure technique work. So usually beginners or in the strength phase. Yeah, and I agree with you there. But I, and I think we both have a lot of lifters who um, do just need that technique work all the time. Mm. And I tend to put stuff like pauses or even cluster work or temper to the knee, um, block pulls for technical learning, positioning and stuff like that. I tend to keep that stuff in during these volume blocks. Yeah, but do you like this? I do that as well, but do you? Con- I don't really consider it just as technique work then. I'm like, I'm like picking the tool that is amenable to both rather than being like, I'm going to do this for technique. Yeah, it's like a crossover between yeah, trying to accumulate volume but also like keep technique where it should be maybe the better way to say it um from my perspective is i go what deadlift variation lets me do heaps of reps and is good for hypertrophy whilst also addressing this person's technical needs so in that instance like if yeah if you're on board with that completely agree yeah see like that's exactly right i tend to have like one slot that is dedicated to that Mm -hmm. and then one other the other hip hinge slot that is dedicated to, to, to doing grunt work Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, on board then. Totally cool. Cool. Strength blocks. Um, strength blocks, it depends, but usually I just move towards the, um, like, having a secondary deadlift that addresses some weakness in their pattern. Um, and again, I like to just do things that highlight an aspect of their positioning where they've got it wrong. So pauses can be really good. Um, pulling from blocks can be really good. Uh, even deficits can be really good for exactly that because it, you know, Let's use the case of deficits as an example. Um, They teach people to start straightening their legs as they push off the floor because to get into the correct start position necessitates a bit more knee bend and usually that cues people to start straightening their knees um, done properly. They also happen to strengthen your back because usually your back position is a little bit compromised or you just have to hold that posture for longer. So, But they can be great as both a technique cue and as a muscle strengthening cue for that reason. Block pulls sit at sort of the other end of the spectrum but are similar if you position a low block at the point where when somebody were deadlifting from the floor that their shin pretty much starts to hit vertical so somewhere at mid shin 
then it's really hard to break the bar off the floor. You have to use your hamstrings. It feels terrible and quite difficult, um, but it teaches you to really engage them, builds a lot of strength in them, builds a lot of strength in your posture and stuff, and it really punishes you for letting your knees shove forward to break it off. So you both you both address that position, so it's technique work, and you address the muscles that help support that position. Um, so I pick yeah one or two things that are most appropriate for the lifter in front of me and their technique, and then do a decent amount of work on the competition pool as well and basically try and transpose the lessons from one to the other. You? Entirely agree. So on the main day, I'll have the the comp variation usually belted mm-hmm. and that'll be the sort of harder day, quote-unquote mm-hmm. harder day, and definitely the heavier day. Yeah. Um, and then on the secondary day, like you said, it's going to be a variation that um, elegantly targets that lifter's technical or muscular weaknesses. I'm so stoked that you said elegantly. Was that like a subtle elegant, shout out to me? Elegant solutions. Yeah, I've been saying elegant on this podcast so much, guys. Um, go on. Yeah, so the I've got the main day, which is comp, and which is the comp specific day, which is heavier, and then we've got that secondary day, which mm-hmm. is um, individually decided based on our lifters' needs. Yeah. Um, it's generally going to be loaded lighter because it's going to be putting them in a really difficult position to overcome, which mm-hmm. is why we've chosen that variation. So it's, we're going to see quite a big difference in load here, but the um, relative percentage is going to be quite similar. Yeah, I agree. So with if that. you know if we're doing let's say a block pull where we start, like you mentioned, with vertical shins, roughly mid shin level, mm. um, what we're going to be able to do from a dead stop is going to be less than what we're going to be able to do from the floor with mm. our competition style. But it's probably going to be a similar percentage. So like let's say we have a two hundred kilo deadlifter. Mm-hmm. Maybe they can do 180 from the blocks. Yeah. Um, off a dead stop. Yeah. So that's 10% lighter. And then you give them fives at 70%. That's way lighter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here in the strength phase is where I might introduce stuff that I consider pure technique work. So some of my lifters in a strength phase before they do their competition deadlifts will have like a couple of sets of five RDLs or a couple of sets of three or four paused deadlifts or something super light and then work up to their actual work a bit like what you said you were doing with the squat yep um that i consider pure technique work it's like really easy not even tiring just giving them a sense of the position and then we try and put that in play um but yeah the reason i draw the distinction there is that stuff is not even accumulating any fatigue it's not making them stronger it's literally just remember this off you go you know yeah that's interesting because i i do use that for the squat and the bench but i've never used that style for the deadlift and i don't know if i have a justification for why or why not Mm. and it might be something that i'll try um in the future Mm. like a couple of sort of feeler sets before the main work yeah well look it has tended i don't actually i don't even know if i can attribute the success of any of my deadlifts to doing it but it seems to help a little bit um and very often people start seeing improvement in that and then a delayed improvement in their actual lifting which you you could interpret that as being they're getting it like they're getting the technical change you want to make in that variation because it highlights it and then it's taking them longer to put it in their main lift or it could just be that the first one's easier <laughs> i don't know but but it seems to work so um i've done that what what else was i going to say about this i don't know we're having one of those awkward moments on the podcast where i can't remember what i was going to say crickets crickets why don't we move on to peaking and if i remember the smart thing i was going to say i'll jump in yeah. Oh, no, nah, kidding. <laughs> go on. You spooked me. Yeah, go on. Um, so during a peak, we mentioned this earlier, usually no variations. 
Yeah. Um, and it's going to be injury or lifter specific if we do have a variation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, twice per week, twice per week comp deadlifts generally with um, quite a big contrast between heavy light. Yep, totally. All right. Differences in technique, tolerance to the lift, and um, the lifters' needs of it, they exist. They do exist. What are some of them? How might they influence programming? So the way I broke this up was in the basic training principles, which in order are frequency, intensity, and volume. (laughs) All right. So I mentioned earlier the importance of your build um, and used Alex and myself as an example and also Matty Bartholomew squatting. If you have a bad build for deadlifting or your technique sucks or is just more back dominant, even if your technique's good and back dominant, you'll tend to tolerate less volume. And if you have a really good build for deadlifting and or deadlift with a relatively upright torso because you're blessed yeah, with good building, good building? Fucking hell. <laughs> you're blessed with a good build and or good technique and your back stays stiff and all that shit, then you'll probably handle more deadlifting volume. Um, I actually think that sumo deadlifting, which is cheating, takes this to the extremes because um, most sumo deadlifters, like give or take how hard it is on your hips, are going to deadlift with a more upright torso angle than most conventional deadlifters, um, which means less back stress. So for, you know, one of the reasons I think sumoers can handle a little bit more volume tends to be that. What do you think? Agree entirely there. Like look at, um, look at Stupas. Have you seen some of the volume he's been doing lately? I haven't seen the volume he's been doing, but guys, if you don't know Stupas, fuck his Instagram handle is E-S-A-N-T-S underscore S-T-O-U-P-A-S. And by that stage, he's going to be up on your feed suggested. Um, he has an incredible sumo deadlift. His hips basically start at the bar. Mm. Um, super upright torso, like just technical perfection, basically, at sumo. Yeah. And I, what, he can do heaps? He's doing like sixes at 245 at the moment. What's he pulled? 290? He's 289. Okay. Um, so like, what is that as a percentage? That's like eighty-five ish. Close, close. Two ninety so minus thirty is two sixty. Uh, a bit over eighty, not yeah. eighty-five. But yeah, you know, in the eighty to eighty-five range, doing sixes easy. Yeah. Well, similar example. JP, good deadlift technique, good deadlift build. Blah blah. I'm JP. I deadlift. Um, and he's pulled like two fifty or something for eight or nine. And you know, when he was doing, he would do fives at like two fifty-five as back-offs for his competition pulls in the lead-up to nationals, and they were, like, super easy, mm. and he was not that taxed by them. Like, they just look like a joke. I have a relatively good build for conventional, but if I did fives at 255, I'd be, like, dead afterwards. Yeah, there's definitely definitely that um, greater ability to handle uh, volume in the sumo, especially if your hips can take it. Mm. And also, we don't need as much of a um, contrast between heavy light yeah, like JP was doing what he's doing, like doubles at two forty five on his light day, right? Yeah, and he's he was complaining that they might be too easy because I didn't progress them for like three or four weeks at a time, um, and I was like in percentage terms that just looks easily hard enough, but he was like these could be fifteen kilos heavier, which to me is just mind boggling. But you know that's how easy it can be if you're really well built for it. That said, there are sumo lifters who are really inefficient for whom that discrepancy almost doesn't exist as well. So. You know, your mileage may vary. Um, another thing I wrote, which you've mentioned as well, is stronger lifters usually progressively handle less hard overloading sessions and how overloading they have to be also has to become less aggressive. 
Um, so basically there need to be more spaced and the actual difficulty on paper of a hard session will probably reduce over time for people who are really strong. Do you reckon that happens to be the case? Absolutely. I think that's basically just, that's like all of training for powerlifting in a nutshell, just can, like just for deadlifting. So we spoke about like why you need to periodize more for advanced people because they can't handle as much concentrated hard loading. Same thing happens on a lift by lift basis and you'll see it in the deadlift for people who are really strong, basically. Um, yeah, and it's, it's accentuated in the deadlift because the deadlift is the most taxing of the three lifts. So yeah, the better sure. you get at any of the lifts, the more taxing deadlifts gets relative to the other two lifts. Yeah. And therefore, the contrast grows even further. Yeah, and you're probably more likely to be deadlifting 300 kilos. More, well, we, sorry, you will deadlift 300 kilos earlier in your career than you bench 300, unless you're like Daiki Kadama or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's amazing. He's um, crazy. Not at deadlifting though. Got you there. He did two twenty five raw at seventy four. Really? Have you seen that? Deadlift. No squat. Bench. Sorry, bench. <laughs> squat. He, I was more surprised by that being his he benched, deadlift. So he his benched bench. two twenty five at seventy four raw, and that I is, think his best deadlift is like one seventy. That is stupid. <laughs> Absolutely phenomenal. Um, anyway, he's an exception. If you're listening, you're probably not. If you're listening, Daiki Kadama, let us know. We can get you on the show. Yeah, you um, can talk about how you bench and drink beer. Does he drink beer? He loves beer. That's awesome. And he benches six days a week, no accessories. <laughs> That's so great. Um, all right. yeah, he's like the Japanese Ziz. <laughs> <laughs> just, just chest day and party. Nah, Suzuki is. Have you seen Yusuke Suzuki? Oh, I thought you meant Katsu Suzuki. No, 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 not Katsu. Not Katsu. Whose name is the most stereotypical Japanese thing I've ever heard in my life. But yeah, carry on. Yusuke is just chicken car, right? Katsu, chicken katsu, yeah. and Suzuki. Suzuki, chicken car. I'm gonna start calling him chicken car. That's racist if you do that. Is it? Mm, probably not. It's pretty funny. <laughs> um, okay, Yasuki Suzuki. Yeah, Yasuki Suzuki. He's the other 74 Japanese bencher, mm. and he's like the opposite to Kadama. He's like yeah. not as technically proficient. He's like super yoked, mm. and they're like they bench the same, and they're like completely different. Yeah, actually, Simon Bergner spoke about that when I had him on the podcast. You were away. Um, yeah, I, I listened were. to that. When I was in America for the. Oh well, that's how the, you know then. the playoffs. Simon told you. Yeah, that's a good no, no. Answer. I knew that before because I met them in Singapore. All right, it's not a competition. I met them in Singapore, and basically what they do is they take turns competing in eighty three and seventy four. They never compete against each other. Okay. Because they're like so far better than anyone else. Like they're both close to the eighty three world record. Right. So like they'll just take turns. One of them will go up. One of them will go down. That's fun. And um. They should both do like 83 together one time. Spend some longer, spend more time being bigger. Yeah, I think they're both just like perpetually 73 to 75 kilos. Anyway, Kadama was like eating steak and drinking beer to make eight, to make 74.05. And he weighed in like 74.2 or something and benched like 220. <laughs> All right, anyway, back to yeah, deadlifting. Enough, enough about benching. I don't know yeah, why I'm talking about sucked. bench when it... Stupid. The podcast. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing that I mentioned or that I wrote down was that um, deadlift does interfere with the squat, but it's also partially dependent on how strong you are in each of them and what your technique's like in each of them. So if you happen to have a great build for squatting and a terrible build for deadlifting, you'll probably find that your deadlift interferes with your squat more if you put them close to each other because your deadlift's going to fuck you up. And the opposite could be true if you have a really good build for deadlifting and you squat terribly then you'll probably find squat training taxes you for deadlifts more than the average person. But usually, like on aggregate, put everybody in the world in one category, 
tends to be that the deadlift interferes with the squat more if you put them close to each other than vice versa. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. And this is the, if we go back to what we talked to Matt Gary about, this is why he uses um, lower volumes of deadlifting comparatively to squat because the squat builds the deadlift, but not the other way around. And part mm. of that is because the deadlift is inherently more fatigue. Yeah. Well, I can get around that. Yeah. I liked Matt. Yeah. He's good. He was good quality. Good people. Yeah. <laughs> he is good people. What's this? Um, what's this trend with calling someone my man's? You know, I think that's that? like. Isn't that like bodybuilding forum? I don't think it's bodybuilding talk. For, no, no, no. Did he say my man's? No, he didn't say my man's. Who did? No, I'm saying like I get. I open my Instagram. My explore is all memes and animal videos, and half the memes are like, "That's my man's," and I'm like, well, "Why is he your man's? That's just weird." You know. I think that's just like. Isn't that just like forum slang? Probably forum slang. Doesn't make sense. Somebody write to me and explain my man's. Um, okay, muscles used for the deadlift. It's and like when people used to say TY men's. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that was same, bodybuilding. Same thing shit. though. No, it's not. Well, like similar. Maybe. Like I, it's like because you'd say thank you men, not thank you men, plural. Because it's not plural. It is plural, but like men no is way. already plural. Yeah, it's like sheep and sheep and exactly. octopus and octopuses. Octopi. You can be both apparently. How weird is that? Is it actually octopi? It can be both. Octopuses and octopi. Weird. But it's certainly not octopus as the plural like it is with sheep and sheep. Um, <laughs> muscles used and the need for accessory work. So um, already spoken about how the glutes get trained pretty well by squatting and the back gets trained to a degree by squatting, um, particularly the upper back. But your hamstring and low back muscles are the ones that I usually consider when I'm thinking of deadlift training. Um, and particularly isometric work for the lower back. So I don't really tend to prescribe people to do like say a back extension and actually overemphasize the back extension part. I tend to try and cue them to hold hold their trunk still and do full hip extension. And then their back is doing work to resist flexion, but it's not actually actively extending. Do you do the same? Yeah, I do with back extensions, yeah. Um, well, yeah, that's I tend to do things like that. And likewise, when if I were to get someone to do a good morning, I would basically say like hold your back position and do a hip hinge as opposed to extend your back really hard to commence your good morning. You the same? Yeah, absolutely. Have you if have you ever done a ba- uh, good morning where you deliberately extend your back and then you start come down? Yeah. It's the fucking worst. It's so it's painful. A, it's really hard. Um, when I did weightlifting, they actually made us do that a bit and I was like okay at them. Then I tried to do them recently and they sucked. It was really hard. I really don't like good mornings. I, I think it's probably because I can't control my pelvis very well. I did some good mornings to pins the other day, and they were okay, but I was weak at them. Have you seen um, Bergner doing... Scrape the rack Yeah, good into the rack good mornings? Yeah, what I think thoughts? that's a west side thing. I don't know what my thoughts are necessarily. I don't hate it. Similar to, to the rack? Uh, I don't think it's quite similar to the rack, but it's a bit similar. Um, we'll have to ask Bergner. I don't really, I don't have, really, have, I don't really have thoughts either, yeah. Okay, um... So, when I think of glute training or glute involvement in the deadlift, the first thing I consider is also torso position. So, if somebody like sits really extended and just can't control their ribs and pelvis, then they're probably not going to be able to use their glutes effectively. So, rather than being like, go do some hip thrusts, I tend to like get them doing some breathing drills and some bracing stuff first. And then they can do some hip bridges and shit on the side. That's fine. But like, if you can't do that other stuff, you're not going to be able to use your glutes. So, basically, postural strength and integrity... Can you do a decent hip hinge? Are your hamstrings strong? Can your back support you? That's what I look for. Alex? Yeah, no no arguments there. I have no notes for this, by the way. I'm just nodding. Okay, cool. Um, well, that's pretty much all I had to say about that shit.
cool. Let's take another break and we'll do the Q&A. Yeah, fuck yeah, let's do that. Mad. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Interference and synergy with the other lifts. We do have to kind of do we that. Already did, we already spoke about that. Uh, what about conventional to sumo carryover? We didn't speak about that. Okay. Well, that I'm sure that was a question, but we'll cover it now. Um, the conventional carries over to the sumo better than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. That's it. Right, that's now re- let's that's have That's really it, though. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I pretty much agree with that. So... Okay, let's. We spoke about Matt earlier. This is something that Matt believes in um, very highly. I don't know if that's the right word. Probably not. Fervently, <laughs> ardently, firmly. He he firmly. I, he ardently believes. That sounds passionate. Fervently also sounds passionate. You're making up words, Will. Hmm? I am absolutely <laughs> not making up words. Absolutely not making up words. <laughs> Uh, My anyway, favorite Matt. is um, further hence morph. <laughs> That's the funniest word I think I've ever heard. All right, shut up. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, we've talked some absolute trash on this podcast. Yeah. This is about 30 minutes longer than it has to be. <laughs> anyway, Matt believes that conventional deadlifters should should try sumo in off-season, and he thinks that there is carryover. But I don't know what his rationale is, so I'd actually like to get him on to talk about it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to respond to Matt on air. He's wrong. <laughs> um, no, I actually don't think... I don't think that it is a terrible idea. Um, yeah, like, my view is that it's not a complete waste of time. No. Like, there is some carryover, but I think you can spend your time a little bit more effectively doing other stuff. Yeah. If but you that being said, if you are just exploring sumo, yeah. like, you're just trying it out, you never know. You may have a really good sumo deadlifter who pulls conventional all the time, mm. who you coach, and yeah. you've never tried it, and they've never tried it, mm. and you don't know until they try it. And it might be that, like, oh, wow, this guy who's pulled conventional for five years is really, really suited to sumo, and now he pulls sumo. Yeah, look, like, you could do some sumo deadlifts and still strengthen your hip extensors really well. Um, you might handle a little bit more total volume of deadlifting and have less interference with your other training by doing some sumo in the off-season. Totally, and like you said, it gives you the chance to actually determine whether you're any good at it. I don't think it is as specific to the conventional deadlift as pretty much any of the other conventional deadlift variations that you could do that also have the benefit of strengthening your hip extensors and things like that, So, I'm, and also are less fatiguing, by the way. So I'm not necessarily sure that it is the best thing to do, but there are certainly applications where I'd think it was like an okay idea. Um, I just wouldn't be inclined to do it as like my default stance. I'd do it for some people sometimes, probably. Um, do you want to have that break now? Yes. Okay, break time. Weekly Weights. Welcome back to Weekly Weights. This is episode, like I remember, 60-something? Six? 66? I think it was 66. Nice. Yeah. Just Programming. 600 episodes shy of the episode of The Beast. Nice. Nice. That's going to be, imagine that 12 We'll get Gino on for that. And he 12 needs- years from now, Gino will be in a wheelchair. <laughs> He's probably already in a wheelchair. Gino being the very well-known commentator from the IPF. Um, He's got that speech he does about whenever it's 302 and a half kilos loaded, it's 666, the number yeah. of the beast. And he has that speech that he does every time it's loaded. It's so awesome. It's classic. Anyway. He looks like Captain Jack Sparrow. But we're doing power. programming the, the deadlift and we're going to hit the Q&A. Um, first things first, the stupid questions. Okay. Okay. Tom Clark Fitness says, when will I be good, please? Never. Dear client, never. Loco.mcd, who recorded our jingle, says, why deadlift at all? Why do anything at all? The French Josh, my client, says, why is it so hard? It's because you're not very good yet. 
Um, and you're soft. <laughs> Does um, he listen? I don't think he listens. Um, no, he'll get better. Um, Prince Bundon says, why is Alex jacking your dark tanned skin swagger? He's complimenting your tan. Um, I appreciate the compliment, Brandon, but this will last like three days and also I've gone up like two shades, so... And Locker McD again says, answer my question, you silly boy, prior to us recording or releasing the podcast. Um, and then Dennis J. Pereira asks the stupidest question. Um, shout out, Dennis. He says, does eating ass directly translate to lockout strength in the sumo brackets cheating deadlift? Thanks. So was it Don Mazzetti, the bro science guy who did sumo deadlifts uh, eating ass? Was it yes, he eats, yeah. eat, but... Eat butt, pull sumo. Eat butt, pull sumo, yeah. Or pull sumo, eat butt. So, guys, if you don't know that, Bro Science on YouTube, which was a pretty funny channel back in the day. I don't know if it still exists. Does yeah, it, still- it definitely still exists. Really? You know he's got the, the Swally Bible? <laughs> no, but that's funny. It's like funny a book well. and there's an audio book and he, he reads it and it's uh, very Actually, funny. Rob Flett did, um, did mention that to me the other day. Rob, who was on the podcast. Anyway, yeah, he Cherry, has something. Cherry like, has it on his, on his phone because he's awesome. like subscribed to that book app where you get one free book a month or whatever and so he got the swallow and he got that one month yeah and it it's fucking funny he played some of it's absolutely classic well yeah dom mazzetti slash bro science paul sumo eat butt that's the point of that joke anyway yes um the only thing that will improve your sumo because sumo is extremely gay (laughs) is eating guys butts let's not have homophobic jokes on the podcast it's not homophobic yeah true yeah, you can eat guy butt if you want. Yeah, why not? I'd encourage it if you want to. If that's sumo. if that's your preference, um, go for it. <laughs> sure. All right, let's move on. Um, speaking of eating butt, Ben Sellers <laughs> says, <laughs> "You're gonna hate that, hey, Willie." Um, ben Sellers says, "You watched my deadlift fall off leading into nationals while my squat was increasing. I'm just trying." Not only was there no question mark there. I didn't even read it with an upward inflection at the end, which would normally indicate a question. So, Ben, demoralizingly, not only did I not watch your deadlift fall off because I wasn't really following your training, but I'm also not going to answer that question because it wasn't one. What do well, you think, Alex? Well, he, his deadlift did fall off during his prep, but I think this is due to his grade two hamstring tear that he had like 12 weeks out or whatever it was. Yeah, it doesn't help. Um, and then he missed a rep in training and I think that got in his head. And then he's still one national, so who cares? Yeah, true. All right. Mags W1978 says, what accessories would you recommend for someone with a terrible lockout? I can't help but feel that this question was about herself. She's so self-deprecating. Is self-deprecating the right word? She puts herself down. Yeah. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Why? Oh, she missed her final deadlift at nationals at lockout. She did, Gave yeah. it a red-hot crack. She did, yeah. Um. Okay, a more serious answer to this most people's lockout problems at the deadlift aren't lockout problems. They are problems with maintaining their position through the pull. Um, it's And like at the heaviest of loads, you will still lose position almost invariably, so that's fine. But if you are consistently finding your deadlift lockout hard at lighter percentages um, than the average person or for longer towards the end of your set than most other people, I would assess your start position first. So make sure that the bar's in the right place relative to you off the floor, your hips in the right position, your knees aren't too far over the bar, um, that you're commencing your deadlift by pushing the floor away, that you're maintaining your brace well. Do all of that stuff first and almost certainly your lockout will improve. But if you pull like shit off of the floor, 
then you're going to have a bad lockout all the time. So I'd look down first. Yeah, and this is something that I have personally dealt with mm. um, because I used to really try and get the bar moving quickly off the floor mm. and in doing that, compromise my starting position. And when weights were light, it would move quick enough off the floor that my lockout would be no problem. But the heavier that it got, the um, slower it would be off the floor, the more my back would round and then the more I would struggle at lockout. Yeah. Um, and the way that I addressed this was actually gradually fixing my starting position and trying to accelerate through the deadlift rather than be fast at the start yeah. and um, to answer Mags's question because she's just started a new training block on her secondary deadlift day she has um, three counts of the knee to ensure that she's holding her starting position maintaining her starting position and then accelerating through the pull yeah. and that's that is what I believe is going to fix your lockout Mags if you're wondering yeah, so I think if you have sound positioning up until that point and then you have sound lockout technique, you're sweet. So quickly we'll address lockout technique. You want to keep your arms long and push your heels down and bring your hips through, right? People who drift forward onto their toes or slacken their knees are going to have a hard time getting the bar up their thigh because they're not using their hips at all and they'll have to do it by arching their back, which means they pull the bar further. So heels down, hips through, squeeze your glutes, reach long. Um, but if you have a shit position up until then, you're going to find that impossible anyway. So do what Alex said. Yeah? Yeah. Cool. Um, more? Next question. Yeah, next. Renee Winter. Good grief. Renee she Winter. She asked a few questions, didn't she? Um, I'm counting. One, two, three, four, f- I think only five. That's, um, a, that's a few. <laughs> when or why would someone program a shit ton of singles within one session? I feel like we've answered that. Um, and there's a more detailed question about using singles for technique later. Do you, uh, do you want to say a quick few words? Or uh, Because the deadlift is really easy to set up from, we can do singles and not waste time setting up like in the squat or the bench press. Mm-hmm. So it's actually time efficient to get in lots of practice doing first reps. Um, and also because the deadlift is uh, you fatigue earlier than you do in the other two lifts, we want to cut our reps short and leave more reps in reserve. So it can be a good idea to use lower rep sets if you add more sets to equate volume. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty much that. Um, okay. Uh, we'll get back to Renee shortly. So Josu EPT, so J-O-S-U-E-P-T-175 says, for a sumo puller, wouldn't stiff leg deadlifts be a better option than conventional deadlifts as accessory work? I'm not entirely sure what your logic is asking that question. I'm going to presume it's because you're saying you don't really need to be very good at conventional deadlifts and the reason you would do them as opposed to more sumo work is to get more hamstring and back work and so stiff-legged deadlifts just take that to the extreme. If that's your thought process, then possibly, but it may also be that doing conventional deadlifts, you are less taxed than you are by doing stiff legs because stiff legs really smash you. Um, or there may be other reasons for you doing conventionals as well. So without knowing your logic entirely, I can't say for certain, but I also I also don't mind the logic of just saying you don't have to be really good at the variation that you're not competing in. So that could be fine. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I if that is the rationale that he's using, then sure, that's fine. I would, um, I would teach the conventional um, as my main accessory for sumo pretty much in 95% of circumstances so long as someone can um, do it well and the reason for that is um, when you do stiff legs you don't really worry about a lot about upper body lat engagement and upper back tightness and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and I think it's really good to teach that um, 
through the conventional to longer range of motion. And also you can put more weight on the bar. So you can actually get your back handling more load. You can have more weight in your hands and all those kind of things that are going to carry over a bit better to the sumo than just doing lighter stiff leg work. Yeah, another brainwave that I'm not I'm not certain how strongly I feel this, but something good about conventional deadlifts um, as pertains to sumo is you still have to actually push the floor away. So you have to get used to that sensation of pushing into the floor, lengthening your hamstring a little bit under load, and then having your hamstring basically carry that load through to the knee. Um, whereas in the case of a stiff-legged deadlift, you don't really push the floor away. You kind of drag the bar up off of the floor, and that's bad practice in the sumo. So it's not to say that doing that is going to teach you to sumo badly, but there is that sort of slightly more specific technical element of conventional deads. Again, not sure how much it matters, but it's worth considering. So not for all purposes, but possibly is my answer to his question. Yours? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Renee again. What's the highest number of reps you would give a powerlifter for deads in a hypertrophy block or off-season block? 12. Yeah, 12, but very rarely would I take my deadlift... um, like competition deadlifts, I very rarely now do more than six or eight. Any deadlift variation up to 12, but even at that point, usually you start seeing people do bad reps first. So money range for hypertrophy is probably in the six to 10, but you could do 12 or more, I guess. Yeah, most would be 12, generally eight to 10. Usually start conventional or sumo as the main lift at eight and then work down. Mm. Probably don't go probably don't go um higher than eight for main lift yeah yeah more or less that um renee again in what circumstances would you include or take time off deads during an off season so we've spoken about how we'd probably take time off the competition pool taking time off any type of deadlifting if somebody was doing a pure hypertrophy block with no intent to begin preparing for powerlifting in the near future and had been doing a lot of powerlifting stuff leading into it then I might consider having them do no deadlifts. But even then, I'm not sure that that would be preferable. That would just be an option that I would consider okay. Otherwise, I think if you just go far enough from the competition-specific lifts, you get pretty much every benefit that you would get from not deadlifting while still getting a lot of the benefits that you would get from deadlifting. Alex? Yeah, I think there's merit to going entirely away from deadlifting um, so long as you're a long, long way out of from competition and you've got enough time to... Um, build it back in light enough to let yourself to progress for long enough. Um, but, you know, like I said before, I pretty much always keep a barbell deadlift variation of some degree in, whether it's an RDL. And I have, um, for a lot of people, had their main deadlift for like a whole block or for even eight weeks, just an RDL. But yeah. it's rare. And it, it's only in the instance where they have a lot of time. Um, Renee asks when would you include sumos and conventionals in the same block we've answered that and she also sent us an apologies if my questions suck Um, appreciate that apology they were actually pretty good Um, at least they were questions (laughs) Yeah, you. at least they were about deadlifts oh actually I misread that last one she says apologies if my questions suck no she didn't that would have been really funny (laughs) um Okay, so Matt Stewart, aka the underscore strength physio, um, shout out Matt, asks, thoughts on cluster sets for improving technical efficiency? So both Alex and I are fans of using cluster sets for reasons that we've already said in the podcast. I think, um, in my instance, a lot of people presume that cluster sets are only there for technical efficiency, 
I've said the other reasons why they're beneficial, you know, reduced um, reduced fatigue, ability to handle more volume at higher intensities, things like that. Um, but I would also say that depending on somebody's technical needs and the way in which you coach things, you can get improved technical efficiencies by the exact opposite of cluster sets by doing things like a controlled eccentric touch and go deadlift with relatively high reps because you give somebody more positional awareness through the whole pool. You teach them to feel what it's like to hold tension in their hips, things like that. So, you know, you can depart very far from specificity to improve aspects of technique. And so thinking the most specific thing is the best way to improve technique always isn't necessarily the right way to think about it. It's more how can I change the rules under which somebody is doing this movement or the conditions under which somebody is doing this movement to promote them doing it the way that I want them to or to at least promote them thinking about doing the movement so that they get better at it. So is it a good is it a good thing to do to improve technique? Very often. But are there other ways that might be more appropriate for fixing certain people's technique at certain times? I think so too. Yeah, so basically to summarize what you said, there's going to be um, periods of time where we need to break the lift down into into parts mm. or we need to emphasize a certain area of the lift or we need to emphasize a certain position um, where that's going to be what we use to drive technical improvements. Yes. But then also once we have a solidified technique or close to a solidified technique, we can then just hammer in lots of practice with the main lift. Yeah. So I guess there's many ways to skin a cat and as long as you're smart about how you skin cats yeah. keep skinning cats yeah and gotta smash a few cats to make an omelette <laughs> um, actually another another point on this so this is both an argument for and against using clusters lots of people have observed that if you get somebody to do a set of like three deadlifts the second one's better than the first because they get in the right position in the second deadlift um and so lots of people are like, well, you should do deadlift singles because what's the point in being good at your second rep when you only do one in comp? Which I think is actually a valid argument. Yeah, I agree with that. But at the same time, if you observe that, hey, this person's always in the right position the second time they deadlift, one, maybe change how they set up for the first one, sure. But two, that might be a good time to say, okay, well, we're going to do slow eccentric touch and go deadlifts where you pause with full tension the bar on the floor because I want you to get used to getting into that correct position, feel what it feels like and so on do that and then coach them and say okay so now you're kind of feeling what that position's like let's do a couple of deadlifts where you bend over find that position for me then ease it off the floor and then integrate that into a deadlift from the floor so then clusters would be a really shit way to improve technique right yeah absolutely so yeah like alex said you got to have the building blocks then put it in practice yeah not not every um method of training is going to be suitable to everyone's technique and if like you said if someone does do their second third fourth fifth reps better than their first one then they should probably do those second, third, fourth, fifth reps. Like, yeah. Because they're do- getting more good reps than bad reps. Just like if someone is, if someone's first two reps are good and then they start to fall apart after that, you might stop them at two and you do 10 to 15 doubles instead of, you know, four by 10. Yeah. Um, because you're, we want that equation of good reps being greater than bad reps. Yeah, in fact. By like quite a considerable margin as well. Yeah, when I think about, like I mentioned Kyla earlier in the podcast, she put eight kilos on her deadlift or something, six or eight, eight kilos in like eight weeks. And one thing I noticed was when, even when she was doing sets of three, she'd go like good rep, average rep, bad rep, good rep, average rep, bad rep, always. Doesn't matter if they were easy or hard. So then I just got her doing lots of singles. 50 singles. <laughs> Actually, she, was, <laughs> well, she wasn't quite doing 50, but there was a while when it was like 15. 
did lots of good reps. Deadlift got heaps better. Yeah. So much more consistent, you know? Um, That's like similar to Chris Southall. Yeah. Like the first time, the first program I ever rode him, he had like um, RDLs on the light deadlift day and then three by eight deadlifts on the ma- main deadlift day. And like first rep, fine. And then bad, worse, 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 even worse, even worse, even worse up to the yeah. eight. Yeah. And this, <laughs> this block, he has 20 by one. But and like they're works. easy and yeah. like they're all good and they're all the same yeah so like you know whatever the goal is we need to find a way to tailor that goal to that individual and there's going to be multiple ways to do that anyway good question good question um he definitely asked another one oh, yes and in fact he asked three and they're good all of them if using pause deadlifts to maintain shape sh- weird full stop should the pause be just as the plates break the floor I think yes, or more specifically, I like people to pause at the point where the shin starts to hit vertical. So that that will be very close to the floor, you know, maybe an inch or two off it, um, the same point at which I would give people blocks. So very close to the floor is good. The only reason I would say maybe not like, like you know, a millimeter off of the floor is because the knee hasn't quite come back far enough at that point for you to fully load the hips. So most people get that like initial inch or so off the floor using a lot of leg drive. So you want to basically go immediate leg drive, hold under that tension where your hips have started to receive all of the load. And then after the pause, really important thing is to continue to actually push down into the floor and continue to extend the knees. What you sometimes see with pause deadlifts, and this can make them a bad variation for some people, is that they push into that right spot, pause in a good position, and then because their hips are so tanked or the weight's slightly too heavy, they then don't keep extending the knee and pulling the bar in close. And from there, they actually just start back extending it. And then it's like you did a really good deadlift to the pause and then a really bad deadlift after, in which case you're not learning good technique anymore. Um, Alex? Yeah, I agree absolutely entirely. Um, if I would try to get someone to do a pause um, where the bar breaks the floor, I would actually get them to stand on a block like we mentioned earlier yeah. and then have that pause like where the floor would be. Mm-hmm. Um rather than off the floor but yeah i tend to use pauses roughly like one block so probably an inch and a half to two inches from the floor yeah where the knee's starting to get vertical yeah okay um one last one from matt the underscore strength physio he says thoughts on deficits question mark how big should the deficit be question mark i already said that i think they can be really good earlier do you think they can be really good yeah i do how big should the deficit be small Pretty small. Um, it only needs to be big enough that it teaches you to bend your knee a little bit more and therefore extend your knee a little bit more. And if it goes too far, it becomes impossible to have the same torso angle. So when I say torso angle, somebody bends over to grab the bar to deadlift, literally the angle of inclination of their torso, um, that when you're deadlifting from the floor should stay pretty much the same until you pass the knee, then get more upright for conventional deadlifters. When you pull from blocks or from a deficit, that angle of inclination when you're grabbing the bar on the floor should look the same, um, at least if you're doing it for technique purposes. Um, So if you have too big of a deficit, it's impossible to do that um, and still grab the bar, in which case you have a variation. If you bend over more, that's going to be harder on your back but have less carryover to your actual pull. So I tend to think a small deficit is enough. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think um, start with small and if they manage it well, they can maybe go into a little bit bigger of a deficit, but you wouldn't go 
to the point where like the barbells touching touching the feet in the starting position. Yeah, it's like, so silly. That's that's very silly. But the better that someone is built for deadlifting, the um, greater likelihood they're going to have to be able to maintain a good position with a higher deficit. Yeah, because you're not going to be as bent over in the first place. Yeah, like someone like Potsy when, because he's he has the fucking longest arms, man. Mm-hmm. Like when he does his conventionals, I have to I have to get him to do deficit conventionals because like the volume is the range of motion is just so short when he does conventionals that like he needs to do more volume during his volume blocks yeah so he literally does deficits where most people would do um just regular conventionals so if he were to do like deficits he'd need like a double deficit yeah right that's weird um okay anyway there you go shout out matt mock underscore king underscore j says how to periodize and prescribe appropriate accessories if you don't know by now, can't help you. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, rewind an hour and a half and start again. Yeah. Um, there's some good banter in there. Okay, Prince Bundon, um, member of uh, whatever it's called, the process powerlifting, you know, powerlifting TAFE. <laughs> he says, how slash would you program less overall volume with sumo pullers as the mechanics are quite similar to squat? I don't necessarily think I would do less. I can see, so his rationale is, Mechanics are similar to squat, therefore squat should carry over more. Therefore, you could do less deadlifting and more squatting. Don't necessarily think that's the case. Um, I would probably just let them do more deadlifting because they can handle it. And if it got to the point where it was interfering with the squat, then I'd pull back on their deadlift training. And if the squat interfered with the deadlift, because we've already said they build each other really well and the mechanics are even more similar, you could afford to pull back the deadlifts, but usually they don't interfere as much. Alex? Yeah, I think start quite general with... um the volume recommendations that we've given um, and then see how the lift is progressing and if they do start to notice that you know they have some interference with their squat their squat starts to get harder quick then yeah maybe pull the deadlift volume back a little bit mm. or maybe look at adjusting the squat volume so you can get more deadlift deadlifting volume in but I actually think sumo lifters can handle more volume than conventional lifters we spoke about this earlier because of that upright torso position yeah. um, the back takes less of a beating um so I would actually disagree with that question and say it's probably towards the other direction. Are you going to fire him from the process? No, he's just asking. Yeah, I'd terminate that contract immediately. All right, Oliver Munby asks two questions. First one is, useful tips for one time per week pulling for a heavier athlete who deadlifts 260 plus, brackets, develops tendonitis at two times per week, no question mark, in spite of the no question mark, I'll treat it like a question. So he's just stated himself. Yeah, well, actually, useful tips for an athlete, blah, 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 all that sounds like the title of an article he's going to write because there was no question. Yeah, just link us to the article, man, and we'll read it on the air. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Oliver, useful tips for one time per week pulling. Um, you could still, I presume, develops tendonitis at two time per week. One, I would get your tendonitis looked at by a professional. Um, two, I presume he's talking about tendonitis in the hamstring and that it may be a hamstring tendinopathy, um, but I'm not certain of that. Um, depending on whether or not it is that, you might still be able to do some hamstring work on a second day, particularly if it's knee flexion work. So if you have proximal hamstring tendinopathy, you can usually do some some knee flexion stuff without dramas subject to your physio's advice and you may also be able to do some rehabby stuff on a second day um, like Chrissy for instance had hamstring tendinopathy 
and was able to do single-legged IDLs with an other leg sat against the wall and stuff to help rehab that. So that's not really loading work, but you could do that on your second day. For the one day that you are doing, I would just do a reasonable amount of volume. So you might do your four or five sets of actual deadlift work and then follow that by follow that with supplementary deadlifting work that addre- that addresses some weakness in your deadlift and because you've just followed your hard work with it it could be it could be easier again so consolidate your your sort of supplementary deadlifting and your actual deadlifting to one day um, and space it a decent way from your hardest squatting day and then yeah explore what rehab or productive hamstring and or back work you can do on another day that doesn't involve actual deadlifting and that would be it basically do more work on one day you'll survive lots of people deadlift once a week what do you think yeah you can get great results just deadlifting once a week but like will said just manage your um volume and make sure you time things around when your heaviest squat is etc mm-hmm. but if you're only deadlifting once a week you probably only train three times i would assume well he's saying if he does it more than once he gets tendonitis which to me says you need to address that first yeah yeah um i i don't know how many days he trains a week okay um but yeah, you can absolutely um, just deadlift once a week and you can still follow the same structure that we've spoken about during um, this episode. And then on that secondary deadlift day, just use, like Will said, variations that are fine on the whatever tendon issue it is. I don't know whether it's hamstring or whatever, probably. Yeah, I presume hamstring. Um, you can you can find, I'm sure you can find a variation that hits the hamstrings and the glutes without flaring that up and like it might be a case of starting extremely conservative with that and building it up but again like you know we're not physios we're not doctors so yeah we're also not in possession of all the useful information that we could have but it's it sounds like a like don't let the perfect get in the way of the good scenario yeah like you, you can still improve like there's no there's no reason why you can't continue getting better um you just need to find a way to manage your fatigue and like your injury while you continue improving. All right, Oliver again. So Oliver, M-U-N-B-Y, all one word. He says, how do you feel deads respond to load versus volume? I'm not certain that that's the most useful distinction. Um, and I can, like I could make arguments for both for both sides of that argument, which makes me think that it probably doesn't matter. But I'm not sure that's the most useful distinction. It's probably better to say that deadlifts can't handle as much volume at a given load, like Alex and I said. But that's not to say that doing high volumes of deadlifting isn't useful. I do relatively high volumes of deadlift training myself, and many of my clients do a reasonable volume of deadlift training. just tends to be lighter and include a decent amount of variation. That works really well. Then approaching a peak... Most people shouldn't be doing a huge amount of deadlift volume because it's so taxing and it interferes with other things. So at that point, you definitely need some exposure to heavier loads to get better. But if you went full balls to the wall on load, then you'd just like beat yourself up too early, peak too early, or not peak well at all and do badly. So really, it's about managing both to get the adaptations that you want at a given time. And most of the time, you'll find that that means you're pretty moderate and bo- in both or pushing one and pulling back at the other. But it's not like a it's not a universal thing where deadlifts only do well with loads or only do heavy deadlifts or deadlifts only do well with volumes or only do light deadlifts. It's at this phase I need some volume, at this phase I need some load. I'm gonna titrate the other one to allow me to get the effect that I want. Yeah, I think um, also what he's asking is how does that um, compare to the squat and the bench press? Sure. And I think 
I think I said this at the start of both of the other podcasts, but not this one, was that um, each of the lifts sits on the continuum of um, the training variables yeah. at some point, at some point of them. And deadlift's actually towards the low end of each. So if you're comparing your volume and your intensity to the other two lifts, deadlift's going to be at the low end of, um, that's going to be the lowest of the three lifts for both. So that's something that you have to consider when you write your program. You're not going to be able to do as many total reps at the same percentage as you will for the squat and certainly not for the bench press. Agree. Incredible bulk. Um, so incredible, but with a G instead of a D. Bulk, one word, Craig. Craig, Craig Daddy. Craig. He can scull a beer faster than almost anyone. He says, do TNG deadlifts have a place in powerlifting considering touch and go bench does? Yes, I've already said why that can be useful for accessor- um, for technique work. And it can also just be useful in hypertrophy phases if you control the eccentric because you get the benefit of both. I wouldn't do it very often in a strength and a peaking phase because it's not very specific. It's not to say I'm completely against it, but no. But yes, I do think they have a place. Alex? I do think they have a place, but not for the same reason that touch and go bench has a place. Okay, so, what's the reason touch and go bench has a place? So in the bench press, we have an eccentric portion of the movement in competition so we control it to the chest yeah obviously we have to pause um in competition and you know we might do touch and go variations because because it lends itself to doing a little bit more volume for mm-hmm. the bench press but in the deadlift there is no eccentric um portion of the movement so it's not actually specific to the lift but it can be a good teaching tool and it can be a good way to get in some extra volume but you're not going to be able to handle the same um you're not going to be able to handle more volume touch and go uh, than you would off the floor I don't think because that eccentric portion if you control it properly like if you're bouncing them off the floor sure you're going to be able to get more volume in but if you're actually controlling them properly you're going to fatigue a lot quicker than if you're just dropping the bar agree okay Craig again least favorite deadlift accessory trend e.g. pauses clusters deficits spelt incorrectly and, <laughs> and blocks um I don't know if I have a least favorite deadlift accessory trend. I might be living under a rock. I don't know if there's some really dumb ones that I don't know of. Um, I don't have a least favorite one. I just pick the ones that I think are most useful for the person at a given time. Do you have any unfavorite ones? Maybe deadlifting against bands. That was weird. You yeah. remember people used to stand on bands and do deadlifts? Well, yeah. Like Will Phillips still still does that. Well, he's good at deadlifting, yeah. so I've changed my mind. I, I think like that, that one. I think, well, for him, he does it as a, a grip thing. Okay. Because like... It gets so much heavier at lockout. He has to get used to holding it, and then he hold it for ages. Yeah, because he he can pull like three fifty with straps, but he's only done three twenty in a comp, right? Because he's got these like big meaty hands. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that I think if you're doing, um, banded or chain stuff to like try and get more low to the top to fix your lockout, I think you're barking up the wrong tree. Just like I think doing heavy block pulls is barking up the wrong tree. That's probably my least favorite one is people like loading up with 200, like 120, 130% doing block pulls. Yeah, rack pulls above the knee. Yeah, dumb. so dumb. Um, your lockout's going to get fixed by fixing your starting position, fixing your sequencing and like, you know, all that kind of stuff, which we've spoken about. Uh, least favorite deadlift accessory, mm. snatch grip deadlifts. Hate them. Actual snatch grip deadlifts on the floor? Hate them. Yeah, and I don't. They're not very specific to actual deadlifting because it necessitates you getting like upright, knees forward, all that shit. Good for back strength, mm. but I think you can actually get a lot of the back strength benefit and be more specific to the deadlift by doing like a snatch grip RDL. Mm. Agree. Um, and then if you do them wearing straps and stuff, 
it's hard on your lats and stuff to keep it in close and it lengthens your range of motion so if you're like me and i can rdl to the floor really comfortably do it snatch grip and suddenly it lengthens your range of motion like that's fine but just actual snatch grip deadlifts yeah, yeah a bit dopey snatch grips on the floor i hate them what about so snatch grip deficits so i don't i don't know anyone who could actually do them properly yeah, like, so how many people do you know who can actually execute them like a weightlifters? prominent sydney fitness person was advocating them i'll tell you off it was advocating them a lot um i can't see what you're saying so i'm just gonna say no was advocating them a lot and somebody asked my opinion of it and my opinion was basically i can't see a good application for them that couldn't be done better another way so that was actually a good answer alex i forgot that um no not the person you thought okay lifting with randy so lifting dot with dot randy says if my conventional is way weaker than my sumo would getting stronger at conventional carry over a lot well the first thing i want to say randy um if that's your real name and you didn't make a burner account to ask this embarrassing question (laughs) is that if your conventional is way weaker than your sumo that's the first bit of proof that sumo is actually cheating um and secondly your problem is that you just don't have any real strength because if you had any real strength, you'd be better at conventional deadlifting. And so you could try and get better at conventional deadlifting, but it just sounds to me like you're just a perpetually weak sumo puller and you should give up. What do you think, Alex? Agree entirely with your assessment yeah. of Randy. Yeah. But in all, in all seriousness... <laughs> okay, um, yeah, we'll be serious. In all now. seriousness, like, if your conventional really is, it really is that much weaker than your sumo, it's probably going to improve very quickly. So it probably will have some transfer. Um, something we speak speak about quite often is like picking the lowest hanging fruit and like working on that and for you your conventional may be your lowest hanging fruit which may be holding back your sumo yeah um so i think if you do have a huge huge disparity then fixing your conventional absolutely will help your sumo i agree um again jokes aside now i'm sure you're not completely hopeless um jokes aside i do agree but i would also consider figuring out what makes your conventional suck and is that similar to the things that limit your sumo? Um, which might be a more complicated question than you think. But if your conventional deadlift is bad because your hip strength's not that good and your back strength's not that good, and then you go, well, the things that limit my sumo are my hip strength, then you'd say, okay, well, improving my conventional should help, provided that you can train your conventional deadlift well and all those things that would actually make it a useful, um, a useful accessory for sumo. But yeah, basically see how much do how much do the weaknesses line up and how much do the things that will improve while you're trans, um, training your conventional seem to line up with your needs to improve as a sumo puller. And it may be that the reason your conventional is way, way weaker than your sumo is because you're built really badly for it and doing much productive training for it just doesn't agree with you, whereas doing a lot of sumo stuff does, in which case you might not need to actually train your competition conventional deadlift. And just like our friend asked about stiff-legged deadlifts, doing just other variations in the opposite stance might be more useful for you as well. So my broad opinion is probably getting stronger at conventional will carry over, but think about those things first and think, is your conventional amenable to training hard? If it's not, you don't have to actually do conventional deadlifting. You know, you're a sumo deadlifter. But yeah, consider that. It'll probably help, maybe. Kizkaz asks, so KYZ... KYZ, KAZ. Do you know them? Kizkaz. They said, should the contrast in loads from session to session be greater than squat and deadlift in peak? No question mark again. Um, 
should be greater than squat and deadlift. I think he's saying, should the contrast in deadlifting load session to session be greater than for the squat? Yes, typically. Uh, I don't think so until the peak. That's what he's saying, in the peak. Oh, okay. In the um, peak, yes. Yeah, in the peak, yes. Um, we've already said basically why, but yes. Final question. James Dudley, how do you program deadlift accessories differently for people with short versus long levers? Um, Alex, do you want to take that one away? Um, I don't know whether there's a huge difference unless someone is like an extreme outlier on either end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned Potsy earlier, like unable to do conventional deadlifts because the range of motion is so short. So you have to put him on a deficit, for instance. Um, as far as accessory work, I'm not really too sure that I do actually differentiate a lot between builds. I don't think I consciously do. Um, and so this is one of those things where I'm going to give you like a theoretical answer that I don't use myself, so it can't be that important. Boo, Alex hates it. Um, if you have a shitty build... Turning for- my mic off. <laughs> He's checking out for the week. Um, no, if you have a shitty build for... Let's just think conventional deadlifting. So you have really short arms, long torso, all this stuff, and you just bend over looking like a T-Rex trying to tie his shoelaces when you go to do a conventional deadlifting. Um, and it's really sad then you're probably going to cop a lot more um, back strain deadlifting than the average person. Um, And so possibly you would need to consider that a little bit more um, in choosing your accessories. If you, um, you know, whereas if you happen to be somebody who's very well built for deadlifting, you might not need to do as much extra back strengthening stuff because your back just doesn't quite cop as much flack. Um, So maybe you could consider that. Um, but I don't think that's ever really formed part of my thought process. I just look at the person and say, what's good and bad about their deadlift? And, you know, what am I going to address technically and which muscles need some help? Uh, so, yeah, that's basically it. Alex? Already answered. Yeah, okay, sweet. Okay, that was the final question. That was programming the deadlift, the end of the programming the series. I'm going to miss it. The programming the? Yeah. Let's rehash it in six weeks and see if we've changed our mind. Oh, fuck, that was one question. Potsy. Oh, yeah. Goose, you changed your mind about. Yeah. It's the um, only one that I was told about beforehand. Yeah. Um, so Potsy asks, what what are some deadlift cues or technical changes you've changed your mind on in the last year? Um, I can't think of any. Can you think of any? Um, I used to be a big proponent of like protracting the shoulders forward and long arms and reaching. Mm-hmm. And I've, I still like think that you need to reach, but I think the I don't think you need to protract as much as I used to. I think you need a more uh, neutral shoulder position. Like, certainly not retracted, certainly not protracted either. I think that if you are... Well, I now think that if you are too protracted in your starting position, you're going to really struggle at lockout because your upper back's got to work really, really hard at, at lockout to get yourself neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still like to see, like, arms as long as they can be given neutral shoulder position, tie upper back, and lats engaged. Yeah, I don't... I don't necessarily agree, although I can see your logic. If you, yeah, if you round your thought, if you round your T-spine heaps, you have to extend your T-spine, which is hard. So that I back. If you protract your shoulder as far as you can without rounding your T-spine enormously, yeah, that's really hard to do, though. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, in that case, more or less agree. Actually, one is I used to say chest up for the deadlift is a terrible cue. Um, I knew you were going to come around on this. I actually, it's I good. Still agree, it's a bad cue. No, it's good. It's a shit cue. Um, because it teaches people to try and get upright off the floor too early. And I've already said you shouldn't be trying to get upright off the floor. So I tell a lot of people, keep your chest pointing to the floor. However, for some people in their setup, to get them to actually set their back in the correct position 
or to get them to bring their shoulders back over the bar in the right place. If they start with their hips too high and their chest pointing at the floor and their shoulders way too far over the bar, for them, I've started saying chest up. Yeah, and so I hate saying it. Chest up is uh, like something that you use positionally before the lift starts, not like as once the bar's moving. No, once the bar's moving, it's pushed up. I, I completely agree. Okay, well, in that case, but we still agree. You said, but you you literally quote quote you to quote you yeah. blanket statement. Yep. Chest up is a shit cue for deadlifts. Blanket I'll, statement. Full you know stop. what? If if that was if somebody said Will said this about deadlifts, I wouldn't resile from that remark. But now I'm saying I have found myself saying chest up to people before they deadlift to put them in the right position. But I still say keep your chest down as they pull, if just you, to confuse them. But if you if you go back. <laughs> Yeah, it's back to fixing the deadlift. But if you go back to when we first spoke about this, I can't remember. It was probably even before that episode. Yeah. I said literally exactly what you're agreeing with now, that chest up is good for before the lift starts, but once you start the lift, it's about holding position and maintaining shape. Well, you might have thought it first, but I thought of it myself, so whatever. You thought of it because it's been in the back of your mind. <laughs> yeah, it's been like, What's that, that thing that Alex said, fuck, he's right. I don't want to admit it. <laughs> yeah, when <laughs> I been, can't sleep at you, night. You've been, you've been agreeing with me for like six months, but now you've finally got the courage to admit that you agree with me. For oh, something. shut up. All right, anyway, that's the thing I've changed my mind on. Potty also says if I pull 300 at the TSF Team Champs, he'll shave his head and I have to make a bet with him on air. So, Potsy. If you pull 300 he will not. Camps, he will not pull 300 Yeah, that's why it's safe. I will also shave my head. What about if he pulls 290? I legit think that's possible. He's got such good deadlift shape and levers and things. I don't really want to risk exposing my beautiful mane to the world. Exposing... Well, actually, exposing my ugly dome is the problem, but... Will's been, like, ever since, ever since he got his hair, like, properly cut by a good barber, he's been, like, all high and mighty about where his part is on his hair. He's like, bro, you just got to find the part, you know, like when you style your hair. You've got shitty little thin hair that doesn't part properly anyway. That's your problem. So you think you're better than me, but really you just have thin hair. Mate, my hair is so much better than yours. Shut up. You know that it is. (laughs) If Weekly Weights isn't back next week, it's because Alex can't hack the fact that I have beautiful hair and his sucks. Peace.